1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want to preach today from the subject, the meaning of the miracle. Would you say that with me? The meaning of the miracle. Every miracle in the Bible has meaning. God didn't just haphazardly do things to fascinate people, but he did it with a deeper purpose in mind. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, from the grave, he spent 40 days. And he made at least 10 appearances after he was raised from the dead and before he went to heaven. Meanwhile, while his disciples are gathered at a place called the upper room in Jerusalem, in Acts uh, 1 and 4, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait on the promise from the Father. So now they are there in Jerusalem in the upper room, waiting for the promise that Jesus told them about. Luke begins writing, uh, chapter 2 writing, when the day of Pentecost came. Pentecost was uh, a feast day. It says, "When, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, Luke says, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I want you to imagine that they're there, and then all of a sudden, this sound of a violent wind came, and it filled the whole house. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, Luke says. Didn't leave anybody out. Luke says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In other words, as the Spirit gave them the power, they began to speak in other tongues, other languages in this particular interest. The moment they had all been waiting for had finally arrived. You know, when you're waiting for something, maybe you're waiting for your wedding day. And it finally comes. This time of year, some, some of our young people are, and, and are waiting for graduation. And so they are anticipating, well, these disciples were there as Jesus had commanded, and they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not disappoint them. The Holy Spirit made a dramatic entrance into the lives of the disciples, and he did it in four distinct ways. First, there was a supernatural saturation, a supernatural saturation. Notice verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The sound they heard was a supernatural. 
natural occurrence. The sound came not from humans, but from heaven. Luke is specific in his description saying suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Suddenly means the sound was faster than express mail. Suddenly means the sound was swifter than email. The sound was quick, the sound was fast, the sound was abrupt, and the sound was in a hurry. In modern day terminology, we might say something like this, the sound was there before they knew it. Now in order to describe the power associated with the sound, Luke explains that it was like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. We can liken it to the sound of a, of a hurricane force winds or tornado force winds or, or cyclone or twisting types, twister type of wind. But notice now, very carefully, pay close attention here, the sound, not the wind, filled the whole house where they were seated. Don't you miss that? It was the sound, not the wind, that filled the whole house where they were seated. Had wind filled the room, there would have been a logical explanation. Had wind filled the room, there would have been a rational clarification. Had wind filled the room, there would have been reasonable illumination. But since there was only sound of wind and no sight of wind, what the scripture reveals is a miracle. You see the difference? You see, you see sometimes when we can explain stuff, it's, it's not a whole lot to that. But when things happen in our lives that we cannot reasonably, rationally, or reliably explain otherwise that God did it, we understand that it's a miracle. So since there was no sound of wind, uh, uh, no, oh, since there was only sound and, and no sight, what the scripture reveals is a miracle. Whereas the disciples were, get this now, supernaturally saturated by the presence of God. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. They were, they were supernaturally saturated by the presence of God. Now let me see if I can, let me see if I can put a little flesh, more flesh on this. A few years ago, my wife and I were walking around Lake Hollingsworth. That's one of my favorite places in Lakeland. It's a little under three miles around. And we were out walking around Lake Hollingsworth. And it began to rain profusely. I mean, we, we saw it coming uh, when we got out there. And we were really too far to turn around and go back without getting wet. So we found ourselves an oak tree. And there, oak trees are, are numerous around the lake. So we found an oak tree, and we stood as close to that huge oak tree as we possibly could, but to no avail because the wind began to blow the, the, the rain, and, 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 and finally we found ourselves soaked. We were soaked. By the time we made our way back to the car, we were drenched from head to toe. We were dripping wet from that downpour of rain. Well, in a matter of speaking, when the Holy Spirit infiltrated the lives of the believers, the disciples that day, the day of Pentecost, they were supernaturally soaked. 
Are you with me? With the presence of God. They were supernaturally drenched with the presence of God. They were dripping wet, if you will, with the presence of God that day. And ever since that day, God has been supernaturally saturating or soaking believers with the presence of his Holy Spirit. Oh, praise his holy name since that first day of Pentecost. God has been soaking us, saturating us, making us drip and causing us to be drenched with his Holy Spirit. The saturation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers and in the lives of God's church is the source of power that, 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 that allows us to accomplish all that God has called us to do. There are some pretty bright people in God's church. And I, I look around this church and, I, I, and I'm, just, I'm just amazed at, 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 at the, the way that God has blessed our, our congregants. There are some blessed people in this church, but you know what? We don't do the things we do for God because we are all of that. We do what we do for God because we are drenched with the power of his Holy Spirit. Without his Holy Spirit in our lives and in this church, we could do absolutely nothing of significance for God. Martin Luther Martin Luther, the 15th century theologian, wrote the hymn entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in the hymn, Luther warns believers against the fallacy of trying to accomplish God's will by mere human efforts. There is always a temptation for us to try to get God's work done in our own strength. In our own power. There's always the temptation for arrogant people and conceited people and people who have been blessed to try to do God's work in our own strength and in, with our own means. But Luther warned us against that in this text. Luther wrote, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Can I explain something to you today? If we're going to win the battle against drugs in our community, if we're going to win the battle against alcoholism in our community, if we're going to win the battle against fatherless homes in our community, if we're going to win the battle of holy living in our communities, it will not be in our own power, but it will be in the power of the Holy Spirit who has impacted the church of God. That's where our power is. I love the saying that says it's not about us. Luther would point out we're just mere human beings. We're just mere dust in and of ourselves. The world will run rapid over us. Laws are good. Politics has its place. But it is not in laws and politics that change comes. It is in the power of God working through laws and politics and particularly in his church. 
order to win the battle set before us, we must be supernaturally soaked with the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. But not only was there a supernatural saturation, there was a supernatural captivation. Notice verse 3, it states, they saw what seems to be tongues of fire that separated and rested, separated and came to rest on each of them. Notice the visual imagery of Luke in verse 3 as he, as he makes it clear that in actuality, right, right. there were no touchable tongues or tangible fire. Just the creativity of God metaphorically using imagery, if you will, captivating the hearts and the minds of his people. Tongues of fire symbolize God's purification process. Now, now watch this. The method by which God used to symbolize purification with these early disciples was flaming tongues of fire. The message was purification. Don't miss the message. The, mes- the method were flaming terms, uh, uh, tongues of fire. But the message God was conveying was purification. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, God used hot coals to, to, to symbolize Isaiah's purification. The point here is, don't get hung up on the method, but be open to the message. In other words, whatever method God uses to purify you, go with that. But don't get hung up on the the methodology, but just stay with the method. Because God may use another way to purify your tongue and your life and my life. The point is, the miracle is, they were purified. And once they were purified, they were ready to serve. Third, there was a supernatural infiltration. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit infiltrated their lives. What does this mean? It means that all those who were gathered together, as Jesus commanded, all those who were obedient to Jesus, all those who did what Jesus asked them to do in spite of their doubts, their fears, their anxieties. They went to the room and they waited for Jesus. All of those who were obedient to his will, his word, were suddenly infused with the power of the Holy Spirit in order that they might be his witnesses. What does that say to us? That says to us, if we want the power of God, we must stay in the will of God. If we want to be, if we want to be infused with God's power, we must be obedient to God. Can I tell you something? You won't jump up and grab God's power out of the atmosphere. You won't get God's power through a rabbit foot, through hocus pocus, through sending your money to somebody who's promising you God's power in your life. You'll get God's power by being obedient to God. There is power in obeying God. That's what the disciples did. That's why they were infused with God's power. 
Notice Acts 1 and 8, where Jesus told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. For there was supernatural communication. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak in languages that they had not previously learned. That was a miracle. Verse 5 states, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own native language. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? These travelers were confused. They were amazed to hear Galileans speaking in their own native tongue. Verse 8, then how is this that each of us hears them in our own language? Why were these international visitors to Jerusalem so bewildered by what they heard? The answer lies within the context of what it meant to be a Galilean. First, Galileans were inhabitants of the most rural area of northern Israel. They were around the Sea of Galilee. In modern day terminology, they would be considered to be small town people. People are just plain old people country folks. Secondly, Galileans were, spoke with a distinct regional accent, like people from New York, Boston, or Massachusetts, from a, or from a city deep in the south, or from one of the Caribbean islands. There is something distinctly different about the way they or we speak. So it was. The timbre, the tone, the pronunciation, the vocal a distinctive would lay bare the identity of Galileans every time. Such was the case with Peter. You remember the story from Holy Week back in Mark chapter 14, verses 6, six through 71. Tells us that after the arrest of Jesus, Peter was in the courtyard. You remember? He was warming by, by the fire and a slave girl identified him as a Galilean. She looked closely at him and she said to him, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, but Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. A second time the slave girl saw him and said to those standing around, this fella is one of them. A third time some people standing near Peter said to him, you are a Galilean. How did they know for sure that Peter was a Galilean? Notice verse 70. The text reads, surely. You are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Peter's speech was a trademark that verified his identity. Thirdly, these travelers were so perplexed because Galileans were considered by Jews living in the south to be uneducated and unrefined. Therefore, it would be easy to under, understand why an upscale, stylish, sophisticated, classic, cultivated, and cultural group of people were amazed to hear these simple, hardworking, 
everyday blue-collar Galileans speaking their language perfectly. How could it be? So they ask in amazement in verse 8, how is it? How is it that each of us hears them? Here's who? Here's these simple, uneducated, unrefined Galileans speaking to them in their own native language. What languages were they speaking? Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya, near serene visitors from Rome, all over the world, heard them speaking perfectly in their own native tongue. God is amazing. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, they said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Verse 9, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does it mean? Bingo. That's exactly what God wanted. God goes to all kinds of limbs, uncovers all kinds of stones, dots every I, crosses every T, pays particular attention to every single detail to get his word out. That's what it's all about. That's the miracle. So, so what does it mean? What's the meaning of the miracle? What's the meaning of, what does it mean that God would make a promise, choose a place, and send his power to a confused, corrupt, and chaotic world? What does it mean that on the day of Pentecost, some 2,000 years ago, when he meticulously drew together residents from 15 nations to hear a group of uneducated, unrefined, unapologetic Galileans to speak his wonders in their own native tongues. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that God is a good God. It means that God is a gracious God. It means that God is a giving God. It means that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It means that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the miracle. That's what it's all about. It means that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, no matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, if you confess the, with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how many times you've messed up, no matter how much you have blown it, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shall be saved. Acts 20, Acts 2 and 21 says, Thou shalt be saved. And as I close, when him writing explains the miracle, the meaning of the miracle with these simple words, he wrote, We have heard the joyful sound. 
Jesus saves. That, that's the meaning of the miracle. Don't, don't miss it. Don't, don't get hung up in the tongues. Don't get hung up in the wind. Don't get hung up in the fire. The meaning of the miracle is Jesus saves. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward till is our Lord's command. Jesus saves.